there. We take some scripture out of the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 12. And we'll start reading at about verse 13. And I imagine that maybe you don't readily identify just the name of the the book and the chapter and the verse, but I'm sure once that we get into it, all of you will recognize it. It's a very popular scripture, at least uh, amongst churchgoers. I don't think it's very popular amongst the lost. We know there are certain scriptures that are very popular amongst the lost, not the least of which is Matthew 7, 1, in which that they, they like to quote it regularly because it tells us to judge not lest you be judged. Uh, but this particular one... A man asked Jesus to basically do something for him, and it comes down to earthly goods. And I can't help but notice, and having been a teacher and had a group of people listening to you, basically a captive audience in in a lot of instances, that you can tell that some really don't get it whenever that you say something. They completely miss the point, and a lot of times they'll reveal it by how they respond or certain questions that they ask or anything. But Jesus, after this man asked him to do this, he relates a parable. And I could imagine that at times for the type of people like the Pharisees and the ones that were following around, this is probably pretty maddening. Oh, here comes another story. Why don't you just quote Scripture and go on? Why don't you just uh, uh, say what the Scripture says or, or tell me what I want to hear and go on? And this is happening today. That a lot of people, all they want is they want to go to church and they want the preacher to get up and do what they know he's going to do. They want to know what to expect. They don't come expecting the Holy Spirit to move on them, but rather they just want to have their ears tickled and feel good about the fact that they actually went to church and that they gave their small pittance to God for that week. But the thing is, whole week belongs to God. Not just Sunday, not just an hour on Sunday morning, but rather our entire lives and our substance and our very existence is dependent upon Him. And what Jesus does is He takes this small thing and He shows them how it's so much of a bigger issue. It says in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Now I can tell you, I have been a fly on the wall when it comes to inheritance, uh, and I have uh, been directly involved, have done some inheriting. And what I can tell you is that a lot of people, uh, now they'll really go to wanting things and trying to lay claims to things. Uh, and when it comes to inheritance, uh, nobody deserves what they get. They didn't earn it. Uh, they didn't go out and work for it. When my father passed away, uh, pretty well all that he he had, He left in my hand. Uh, all of the goods and things that He had, His partnership in the family business, uh, He left the care of my mother in my hands. Uh, he bequeathed all that to me. Uh, and when I looked around and I saw the many thousands of dollars and tools and things that He had left me, the number one thing that I realized was that I had earned none of it. I didn't deserve any of it, Brother Johnny. I hadn't gone out and worked, sweated, toiled, or nothing else. And that the only reason that I had it was because that man named David Williamson who had acquired those things during his lifetime loved me and wanted me to have them. When Brother Sam Adkins passed away, a good deal of his personal belongings he left to me, his stepson. I became his stepson when I was in my mid-twenties. 
But He saw fit to leave these things to me because He loved me. But also, whenever that... I mean, think about it. If you wanted to leave your most precious possessions to someone, you would want to leave them to someone that would value them, that would value what you've done for them, and that they would take care of it. And not squander it. And you see, our inheritance from God is our own life and our own being. And God doesn't want it squandered. <laughs> like my mom has said several times, especially to my children, God don't make junk. God makes good things. He made you. He made me. We're precious in His sight. But these men here, now he's wanting Jesus to arbitrate a disagreement between him and his brother because this is important. Jesus is in the middle of teaching them about the things that are important when it comes to heaven and hell. And the guy tugs on Jesus' garment, so to speak, and says, Hey, why don't you tell my brother to share with me? Not really the most important thing at the time. I've had students do that to me. I'm up teaching a very complex concept uh, and one of their hand will shoot up as though it's on a spring. Uh, and, and I mean, they'll be waving. Uh, uh, Mr. Wayne, call on me. Uh, Mr. Wayne. What? It must be important. You, you really seem to have a lot of vigor behind it. What time do we get out of here? And I can tell you that students figure out really quick how mad that makes me when they do. It's not important and it's not relevant. Usually I'll look at them and say, when the bell rings, and don't you ever do that again. If you knew how mad you made me, you wouldn't do it. But that's kind of the way this guy was. Jesus is talking about uh, warning against hypocrisy in the verses before this. And then up jumps the hypocrite. And hey, tell my brother to share with me. And now notice how Jesus answered in verse 14. It says, And He said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Now Jesus is the judge, but this guy is missing the whole point about what's really important. And if we're not careful, we'll miss that point. We'll look around and we'll be get, get so wrapped up in things that we'll forget that God is most concerned and what's most valuable to God is people. You see, it said we're supposed to love people and use things, but nowadays we love things and use people. We've got it backwards. Jesus goes on and He says, and He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Wanting stuff that really don't belong to you. Uh, uh, going around and, and playing the deserves game and the fairness game. And if you've ever spent time around a little kid, you know this game. They're all the time, well, they don't deserve that. They never look around and look at their stuff and say, but I don't deserve what I have either. And so Jesus tells them, be careful of this. And the Apostle Paul, when he talked about having encountered Jesus Christ, he said that after all the things that he had that he could count as being valuable in the flesh, that after he encountered Christ, he realized what a covetous man that he was. Because the sin and stuff that he didn't do, he wanted to do it. You may say, whoa now, Brother Jeremiah, you mean wanting to do things, wanting to sin? Is a sin? Yes. That's why there's none righteous. No, not one. But we have salvation in Jesus Christ because that He was obedient even unto death. And Jesus is telling him, you be real careful about this because all this stuff, it ain't yours to begin with. 
And he goes on and he says, For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Which you'll notice uh, lines up with what Jesus said when He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That it doesn't matter the stuff that you have. Now we value people based on the things that they have rather than what they have in God. And Adrian Rogers, a preacher of yesteryear, one of the things he said that really struck a chord with me is he said, if you want to know how rich you are, he said, count up everything that you have that money can't buy and that death can't take away. He said, and then decide how exactly rich that you are. Which squares very well with his Scripture. Uh, Verse 16 says, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Now the guy had plenty to begin with and suddenly he finds himself with more. Verse 17, And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. A lot of times, if you get something, your biggest concern is either hanging on to it or getting more. Get all you can and can all you get. Now let us not fall away into the forest of foolishness and think now that having things is bad because it's not. But to remember that we are a steward and a steward doesn't own anything, but now it's his responsibility to take care of it and to use it judiciously. But knowing the entire while that it's not solely his, it's for his use, but it's not his. It doesn't belong to him. When Brother Sam plants crops, he knows when he puts those seeds in the ground that God has to bless it and give the increase. It is God that gives the sun, God that gives the rain. He did the work, but without God's input, there's no fruit. There's no increase. And Jesus is talking to a group of people now who think that status is what matters most. And we see this all the time based on the size of somebody's house how new their automobiles are, uh, their status in the community. Whatever it is, suddenly people will look and say, you know what? Uh, They have a lot more stuff than me, therefore they're better than me. That may or may not be the case, but what I can tell you uh, uh, is that if all of our existence is in stuff, uh, then we're miserable people. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, He goes on and says in verse uh, 18, it says, And He said this, this or and he said this will I do I will pull down my barns and build bigger and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods verse 19 and I will say to my soul soul thou hast much goods laid up for many years take thine ease eat drink and be merry now at some point this allegedly became the american dream to be able to get to a point to where that you could sit back and do your ease and do whatever you wanted to. And believe me, I like those times when that work becomes optional. I really do. But if we put that over top of the Word of God and over top of our relationship to God, we've missed the point. We've missed what is most important. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. This man's talking about stuff and Jesus is talking about heaven. This rich man now, uh, he's got all the stuff that really if we were to look uh, just from a purely secular standpoint, we'd say, wow, that's impressive. He has a lot of things. But notice what happens, you see, because what happens is he gets faced with mortality. In verse 20 it says, But God said unto him, Thou fool, 
This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall thee those things be which thou hast provided? We come back to inheritance. But only at this point, somebody's going to be inheriting the rich man's stuff. That God looks at him and says, you're so worried about storing all these things and looking bigger and being greater. He said, you haven't even considered eternity. You haven't even considered what comes next. And this is an easy trap to fall in. For so many years, I've heard people say, oh, I want my kids to have the things that I didn't have. And I can tell you this, the people, the generation that started saying that, you can trace it right back if you look in, uh, in recent history. You can trace it back to the people that lived through World War II. These were the people that many of them were born during the Spanish flu epidemic. And then when they were uh, uh, early teens... That was when the Great Depression set in. Oh, and while the Great Depression was going on, the Dust Bowl happened. We think 2020 is bad. You ought to look back at the 1930s. It was pretty rough. And medicine was very archaic compared to what it is now. And these people literally went without food. They found themselves in a very hopeless situation. And when they said, I want my kids to have the things that I didn't have, the things they were talking about were food, shelter, and clothing in a lot of instances, and some degree of security. And then you bleed over into the 1960s and parents were still saying that. And it was more, 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 gimme, gimme, gimme. And so then mother and father both had to get out and be out of the home. And the children got worse because of it. And because of these things, our society waxed worse and worse and worse. And it was all because that people were concerned with acquiring more things and making sure that they give their children money rather than their most valuable commodity, which is their time. And so what Jesus is saying, here's He's saying this rich man completely missed the point that he looked and he was worried about things when he should have been worried about eternity. And we everyone, if we're not careful, will fall into that trap. It's easy to. You'll notice that when Jesus related the parable of the sower, uh, that third type, it said that they got bogged down uh, because of the deceitfulness of riches and the worries and cares of day-to-day life. And we everyone can fall victim to that at any moment during our working life. If we're not careful and we take our eyes off what's important, Because I can tell you that if your house burns to the ground but you get your family out alive, you're still blessed. You think about that. If your family, if your home was burning down, I hope that there's not a thing in there that you would be willing to die for. But knowing that if you get your family out, everything else is replaceable. That if we cast aside our relationship to God, Because that the things that we encounter, things make us feel a certain way, make us feel good, or or, or engender some sort of feeling that we think, well, God's got to go by the wayside. And I can tell you, that's what Jesus is talking about. This man is so worried about everything else when he shouldn't be worried about heaven and hell. And it's so easy in this day and time to worry most about that. We all have expectations. We all have desires and there's nothing wrong with that. But what is wrong is that anything that gets placed higher on your list than your relationship to God becomes a problem. 
And I know because that there were many times I was tempted to fall into that trap when I was in business for myself. When I started the college, there was lots of times and I thought, well, I've got a test Monday. Maybe I should uh, not go to church this morning and spend that time studying. And then I thought, you know what? Uh, it's God that blessed me to be able to get to college. I'll trust Him to help me on that test. And I'll do what I can when I can, but not forsaking the time that I have for God. Because guess what your most valuable commodity is? And it's not your money. Rather, it's your time. And you think about what our prayer life is. And this is where I think most Christians go off of the rails in their, in their relationship to God. Is their prayer life. Because it's something you have to do every day and nobody else can monitor it. It's between you and God. Nobody, you're not accountable to anybody else. It may be that we don't steal because we don't want to get caught and go to prison. But now when it comes to our prayer life, nobody knows whether or not you're praying. I don't know. God doesn't send me a report weekly and tell me how many hours that Brother Sam or Sister Crystal or Brother Larry spends in prayer, whether or not they pray before they eat every single time, how often they read their Bible or anything like that. But I can tell you, that if you spend a good deal of time in prayer, it can't help but bleed out in every other part of your life. That God should be the first thing on our mind when we wake up and the last thing on our mind when we go to sleep. I'm, I've always been more inclined that if you're going to have a prayer life, to pray in the morning. And a fellow minister of mine gave me this reasoning and I liked it and I adopted it as my own. He said, you don't get your daily bread at the end of the day. You get it at the beginning so you'll have the strength to make it through whatever lays ahead. And you know, and that's part of the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, nourish me. I don't know what's going to happen today. I remember several times when I worked at Candy Queen Hardware and I'd have time to pray before I went to work that morning that I would say, Lord, I don't know what kind of surly customers I'm going to encounter, but give me the grace to be able to love them regardless of how unlovable they are. And He helped me. Did I always succeed? Heavens no. But I sought it. And Jesus here, what He's telling all this group of people, He's not just telling this one man, He's telling everybody that would hear, and Luke saw fit to record it here, was that He was saying that God referred to this man as foolish, not because that He wanted to take care of His stuff. That's being wise and prudent. I'm not saying go home and trash your belongings or anything like that, but I'm saying look at Him and say, you know what, God's blessed me with every bit of this. And if I die today, hopefully He'll bless somebody else with it. That it'll be a blessing to them. And I'm just a steward over it. You know that uh, if I were to fall dead today, my family, they would be without me, but they wouldn't be without God. My life has to come to an end at some point, uh, but their relationship to Him will continue on long after I'm gone. And all that I can do uh, is just point him in the right direction. Uh, that as the pastor of this church, if I were to die, uh, I would hope and pray uh, that God would bring somebody else in uh, uh, to do as good or better a job, hopefully better than what I've done. Uh, but what I can tell you uh, is that my priority, my understanding is, is that whether I continue on or I were to fall dead in the next few moments, that God should be number one in all things. I've had people 
Ask me, should you love God more than you love your spouse? Absolutely. Because if you love God as much as you should, you'll love your spouse more than you ever could without loving God. People think, well, no, that, that can't be right. You're supposed to know. Who joins man and woman together but God Almighty Himself? Uh, uh, it says that what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Uh, when God joins two people together in love, uh, they are joined. He is the joiner. And I can tell you, and I've explained this to uh, some couples that I've counseled. And I'll look right at them. They're on the eve of getting married. And I know how it is. You've got all those butterflies in your stomach and everything. But I tell them, those are going to go away. And it's going to fall down into the day-to-day humdrum activity. And you're going to change. You're, you're going to grow and become a different person than what you are now. There has to be an unchanging element in a marriage before that it'll last. And it's not the man or the woman. Psychologists say that women marry men hoping they'll change and men marry women hoping they won't. I would say that's largely true. But that unchanging element that comes into any marriage is Almighty God. When two people get married, there's a third person in there and it's God. And if He's in there and He's unchanging, they'll stay together. But if they take their eyes off of Him and begin to covet other things, it'll go completely off the rails. And they'll be concerned with everything except God. And I can tell you when that comes in, that is a time of backsliding. That is a time of a person falling away, getting cold, whatever you want to call it. But I can tell you it's not good for that person. It's the worst possible outcome. And the most fearful thing about this is that a person can get to the point to where they're lost and not even realize it. You imagine how dangerous position that is. At least the drunk knows he's a drunk and he knows he's lost and he knows that he's separated from God. But the devil would love to send somebody from, to hell from the pew more so than what he would from the bar stool. The devil would prefer that because if he can keep you sitting in the pew but looking at everything else and coveting everything else and to where that it engenders bitterness... And you do it only for a form and a fashion. Like God said, these people love me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You can fool people, but you can't fool God. And Jesus, when He was talking to these people, He was essentially saying, you better get your mind on what's most important. And any congregation that would listen, I would tell them, get your mind on what's most important, which is a close, personal relationship to God. And you don't get that by just coming to church on Sunday. That's part of it. You also get it through a strong prayer life. You get it through a regular study of God's Word and meditation upon it. To where that it's always bubbling up in your heart. Rather than it's just an afterthought. Something done begrudgingly. Because when we get to that point, best case scenario is we're a weak Christian. Worst case scenario is He doesn't even know us and we're a worker of iniquity. You may say, is that going to happen, Brother Jeremiah? Well, it says, recorded in the book of Matthew, that there'd be come and say, Lord, look what I've done. Look at all this stuff. Look at my resume. He'd shake his head and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And they would be preachers. They would be leaders in the church that would do these things. And then there would be others that had followed him diligently and come humbly he would say, throw the gates open wide and let them in because they concentrated on what was most important. 
And that's what we've got to hold the highest in our hearts and in our minds. Let's everyone stand and get a song.